Chapter Three of Fresh Every Hour by John Peter Tuohy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. An acute observer would have detected signs of suppressed excitement in the general demeanor of Jimmy Martin during the progress of the early scenes of the great spectacle in which Lolita Murphy was essaying the leading role for the first time on any stage. He had exchanged his customary cigarette for the solace of a particularly formidable-looking cigar, which he puffed at nervously as he sat in the manager's box with his cap pulled down over his eyes. His whole body was tense and rigid, and though there was a look of adoration in his eyes, there was something more, a vague something, that seemed to spell apprehension. Justice compels the admission that Lolita was doing Cedar Rapids proud she moved through the thrilling situations of secret service sally with the ease and calm assurance of a veteran and more than merited the applause which the vast holiday audience showered on her when the curtain rose on the final scene the one depicting the streets of london the audience keyed up to expectant excitement by the gaudy promises of the programme held its collective breath and jimmy sunk his teeth viciously into what remained of his cigar McClintock slid into the seat alongside of him. "'That gal of yours is sure making good,' he remarked good-naturedly. "'If she goes through to the finish as nicely, she'll find a surprise in her envelope on Saturday night. There's that English society dame and her party strolling along just as if they were back in dear old London. I had Lawrence, the assistant stage manager, go on with them to put em wise to all the business.' The street on the stage was thronged with a motley crowd of supernumeraries who were supposed to represent the populace of the British metropolis out for an airing on a bank holiday. The rose-pink sweater of the Honourable Ashley was the most conspicuous object in view. That patrician lady bobbed in and out among the others, apparently having the time of her life, and urging her friends, with violent pantomime, to enter into the festivities with something akin to her own enthusiasm. Presently the audience heard a murmur pass through the crowd on the stage, and Jimmy's acute ear detected the muffled purr of the motor on the dirigible which was, at that moment, manoeuvring for position and awaiting its cue two hundred feet in the air, just behind the backs of the last row of spectators. The press agent grabbed the railing in front of him and leaned eagerly forward, he was watching the right side of the stage. A motor-car shot out of the wings through a lane in the crowd. In it sat Lolita Murphy in the role of Queen of the American Secret Service. It was plain that she was simulating great anxiety, and that she was being followed. She looked apprehensively over her shoulder, and the audience could catch excited shouts of, Stop her! Stop her! A gigantic bobby stepped directly in the path ahead of the car, and drew his revolver. The chauffeur pulled a lever, and the car stopped abruptly. A man on a motorcycle came dashing up. "'Arrest her!' he shouted, and he sprang from the saddle. "'She's a German spy from the Wilhelmstrasse!' Lolita looked about furtively, poised herself for just a moment, and then leaped out of the car, overturning an athletic super and making for a doorway as the crowd broke into frenzied cries of, "'Kill her! Kill her!' 
The incident had been rehearsed with the utmost regard for actuality, and as the mob surged after the suspected spy, the vast throng of spectators swayed with excitement like a field of tall grass in a breeze. Lolita reached the safety of the doorway by almost the fraction of an inch and disappeared. The crowd poured in after her, and McClintock caught Jimmy's arm as he detected a vanishing flash of rose pink. "'Damned if that English dame isn't right in at the death,' he said excitedly. "'She's going up on the roof.' Jimmy didn't reply. He was watching the top of the make-believe building with eyes that were strained and staring. As Lolita emerged from the hatchway and plunged forward, with a fine gesture of despair, he looked back over his shoulder for a moment, and noticed that the N-24 was slowly swinging forward, and that the alert and eager face of Bobby Wilkins was visible over the edge of the car which hung from the rear of the big balloon. Lolita held out appealing hands and gave voice to cries for assistance. The crowd, in the vanguard of which was a lady in a rose-pink sweater, with cheeks that were flaming and with eyes that were dancing, swarmed up through the opening and surrounded the suspected spy. The supernumeraries' voices became a blended babble of inarticulate cries, and 3,467 spectators watched the developments in a tense silence. Nearer and nearer swung the great dirigible. Lolita was now in the hands of the mob with which she struggled fiercely. As the N-24 swung around the corner of the roof, she turned as per instructions, but Jimmy noticed with a gasp of concern that she had turned in the wrong direction, and that she was making her way to the wrong side. She was evidently bewildered. Bobby Wilkins was leaning out of the car with his arms outstretched, and was beseeching her to run toward the other side of the roof. In another five seconds the dirigible would have passed on, and the spectacular finish of the big show would be ruined. McClintock swore softly. Jimmy sat as one entranced. Some of the supers were pushing Lolita to the other side, but she seemed to be in a panic, and struggled with them as if still acting the earlier scene. At this juncture Jimmy noticed that a lady in a rose-pink sweater had run to the edge of the roof just above which the dirigible was moving, and that she was holding up her arms. His cigar dropped from his mouth a second later when he saw Bobby Wilkins grab her outstretched hands, swing her free of the roof, and pull her into the car as the great dirigible finally cleared the stage setting, and, in quick response to the hand of the pilot in the front car, nosed her way upward at a higher rate of speed. The curtain fell, and the repressed excitement of the great audience found vent in tumultuous applause. The thing had happened so quickly that there were apparently few who had noticed that the wrong young woman had been saved from certain death by the timely arrival of Lieutenant Thurston Turner, U.S.N. "'My God, what a whale of a story!' chortled McClintock, gripping Jimmy's arm so fiercely that the press agent winced with pain. "'Yes, isn't it?' responded Jimmy dreamily, as he watched the N-24 winging her way over the park and out towards the sea. The spectators had risen from their seats and were applauding again as a big American flag was unfurled from the rear of the dirigible. The balloon kept on its way toward the ocean, and McClintock noticed that it didn't make the turn it usually did when it reached the giant roller coaster that ran along the shore. A puzzled expression came over his face. 
If he had looked at Jimmy sharply just then, he would have observed the first beginnings of a pleased smile tilting the corners of the press agent's mouth. A minute passed, and the great yellow gas-bag receded farther and farther in the distance. McClintock stepped down and borrowed a field-glass from a spectator. He glued his eyes to it for a few moments, and then dropped his arms. His face was pale. "'His motor's dead,' he said weakly, "'and he's drifting out to sea. The propeller's stopped, and he's being carried out by this land breeze. We've got to do something. We've got to get help of some kind.' The manager was plainly worried. He pressed the glass on Jimmy, who had followed him out of the box, and the latter watched the clumsy balloon, now at the mercy of the stiff breeze which had blown up, slowly but surely disappearing in the opalescent haze which hung above the line where sky and ocean seemed to meet. The owner of the glasses had overheard McClintock's remark, and had passed the word to his neighbour. In two minutes the news had spread through the great crowd, and thousands of eyes were focused on the drifting speck which presently vanished. McClintock, pushing Jimmy before him, started for the main office and found himself surrounded by an excited group of men and women. An upstanding chap in a British major's uniform, who wore a cap on which was the red velvet band of a staff officer, stepped forward. "'We're Miss Ashley's friends,' he said, with a touch of feeling in his voice, "'and we'll do everything we can to assist you. She's a bit untamed, sir, and she shouldn't have done that wild foolish thing, but she's the best woman alive for all of that, and now that she's in danger we're going to help you see her out of it. Has that dirigible got a wireless on board?' "'No,' replied the manager. "'There wasn't any need for one. Since it's been here it's never been more than a mile or two away from the hangar before.' "'That's bad, damned bad,' responded the officer. "'Of course, maybe they'll be able to fix the engine, but we can't take chances on that. If you'll let me use your telephone, I'll call up our embassy in Washington and get them to get in touch with the Navy Department. We'll have all the ships in range of the Arlington Station on the lookout in an hour.' The thoroughly sobered group of pleasure-seekers, who had accompanied the Honourable Betty to Jollyland two hours before, followed McClintock and Jimmy Martin into the offices in the administration building, and talked in low voices while the Major began to fuss in the telephone booth with the long-distance operator. Some of the women were weeping. End of chapter 3